Hey everybody, welcome to the Movement is Medicine podcast, episode number four. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, and this week was a really great episode. We responded to two questions from listeners out there. Number one being the most common question that Brendan and I get on a weekly basis, and that question is, should I go to massage school? We get this question all the time from aspiring trainers who are thinking about adding manual therapy to their skill set. And so Brendan and I kind of thought back to our experience applying, going through massage school, and then going about setting up our massage business. As most of you know, uh, listening might know, Brendan and I are both licensed massage therapists. We went to Cortiva Institute and then went on to set up Movement as Medicine. So we thought back to our experiences going through massage school and maybe some things we would do differently or some things that we thought worked really well, kind of gave our advice to this listener. So if you're thinking about going to massage school, this would be a great episode for you to listen to. Additionally, we answered a second question um, from a listener who asked about different movement appraisals and assessments and then what they should use and how we could use the results from a movement assessment to set up a more effective program. And so we kind of gave our overall thoughts on different commercial movement appraisal systems, how you can build your own system, and then most importantly, how do you tie what you're doing in an assessment with a client to building an effective program. So we thought this was a pretty good episode. It's about an hour long. Thanks for listening, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to episode four of the Movement is Medicine podcast. My name is Kevin Carr, and with my amazing co-host, Brendan Rierick here, uh, just enjoying his coffee at about 5 a.m. on the West Coast. <laughs> and it's a little bit easier for me. It's about 8 in the morning. Um, how are you doing, Brendan? How's your weekend going I'm, so far? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I got up a little early, so I can... Uh beat the beat the rush <laughs> um get the podcast in get early the podcast in early i can't believe we're on number four here but uh yeah it's rain's birthday weekend so therefore i need to get all my stuff out of the way before she wakes up super dad mm-hmm. well what's on the agenda for the uh for the birthday well so today is the trampoline park so uh, fingers crossed no torn achilles and then uh, McDonald's lunch. She that was a request because we never have it. And then Sunday is going to be a yes day. So do you know? Have you heard of what a yes, a yes day, day is? Yeah. So it's a movie. No, please. We watched the movie last week. I think it's Jennifer Garner, isn't it? And your parents say no to everything. No this. No 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 no. And the kids. Say, Mom and Dad, you always say no to everything. Why don't you ever say yes? And so they agree to have a yes day where they can't say no to anything. And with there's a couple caveats, a couple rules. So you can't get on a plane or you can't go further than 20 miles from the house. It can't be over $100 and you can't for ask for anything in the future. So you can't say like, buy me a car. Um, it's got to be today. It's got to be yeah. today. So now Rain is obsessed with this idea of a yes day. And so we agreed that... You're going to have quite a day. Yes. So we agreed that if it's your birthday, you get a yes day. So that means I get a yes day in August. Jenny gets her yes day in July, and Rain gets her yes day. Uh, Well, her birthday is Valentine's Day, but because we're celebrating on Sunday. So my first question, of course, was... So, do you want to watch the Super Bowl rain? And she said, no. <laughs> so, I'm going to turn off my phone and record the Super Bowl. And the second she goes to bed, I'm going to watch it. And I'm just, nice. I got my fingers Good. crossed that I, nobody's going to ruin it for me. 
But if anyone wants yeah, to stay off our text chain, yeah. If anyone wants to watch, the, it's a very good movie. It's it's pretty funny, and of course they make the dad. It's called Yes Day. It's called Yes Day. Yeah. Okay. So nice, and we'll make sure to check in with you next week about how mm. your body feels after a day at the trampoline park today. and a Yes Day. <laughs> <laughs> it should be interesting oh my god but yeah that's uh well, that's great that's awesome i don't have anything that exciting uh on the schedule this weekend <laughs> so i'll be looking forward to hearing how it goes for you oh yeah i'm sure i'll have some videos and good stuff good stuff to share what's on well, the agenda um, today here a... nah you know i'm gonna record this with you we're kind of on a tight time schedule because i gotta shoot over to the gym oh uh, right let me get done and I'm going to see one client. Lots of times when I'm here on the weekend, I'll just kind of see one or two kind of overflow clients on a Saturday, really uh, as a tool to get me to go to the gym to work out on Saturday. Uh, it just gets me to go get up and, uh, and get in something there. And it's good. There's always a good group there Saturday morning. There's good energy there Saturday morning. So I'm going to uh, go do that. And then uh, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff around my house. You know, just uh, I'm going to I'm going to putter putter around no. the house oh, uh, oh how our there, lives have projects. changed since our 20s <laughs> <laughs> exactly and, uh, yeah and then the super bowl tomorrow that's really it i my biggest thing i need to figure out is what i'm gonna uh, prepare you should give eat. and it's really just ariel and i, I was gonna say you should give so, ariel a yes day <laughs> she would she would love a yes day the problem is uh, she says yes to work uh every day so that's what she's doing right now <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so maybe she needs a no day. Right into it. She needs a no day. Say no. Yeah, exactly. Say no to work. Say no to Kevin. Say no to everything. Just lay on the couch. Yeah. Say yes to the couch. Yeah, well, hey, as every day that she gets more pregnant here, uh, there's going to hopefully be more no days for her. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, sure <laughs> she deserves them. <laughs> so. Why don't we get right into it here? Right. Um, as usual, we we kind of just go off a lot of the questions that come in over the course of the week. Mm -hmm. And um, the most common question I know you and I get all the time, uh, ever since we both went to massage school and incorporated uh, massage therapy as a tool in our toolbox and open movement as medicine as, as our business is, um, from trainers specifically, is should I go to massage school? And in doing so, how do I incorporate that into what I do um, in, and build a business model? Or how do I incorporate that as a service uh, in addition to what I do as a trainer? And when I say that we get this question like every week or every month, we get it all the time um, because it's been become very popular over the last few years uh, for trainers to develop or uh, go to school for manual therapy skills. and kind of incorporate that rehab-based practice into what they do. And I think it can be a confusing space for people um, because you don't want to try to be a bad physical therapist. Uh, you want to be a good manual massage therapist and a really good coach. And you don't want to start to cross your uh, practice act into being something you're not in working with people who need to be seeing a medical professional. But um, as you and I can both attest and uh, other people we know, like Marco, as well, who, who has done this and Damien, who has done this and all the other coaches that we've worked with, it can be a really good tool. And there's a place on the continuum for, for that professional. Um, and so hopefully maybe we can shed some light on things what we wish we knew uh, before we went to massage school. That was a question that I got specifically. And then how to incorporate that into uh, your business and your professional practice. What I, what I like 
what I like but also dislike about these podcasts is I don't know any of these questions before we start. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of talk through this. Um, and so number one. I can get you going if you want. Yeah, but <laughs> so the first thing that comes to mind is when everyone asks me what, what I do, I'm a strength coach first. Everything strength coach, strength and condition coach is number one. Fitness is number one. That's That's where I start, and I have massage skills as a tool in my toolbox and like you mentioned we I, we know just enough to be dangerous but we know just enough to know, to know when to punt that ball to somebody else or to to bring somebody else in um that's that's my first thought is we we are strength coaches first, and we went, we added it as a supplement. So if you're not, I'm going to say, a strength coach or a trainer yet first, <clears throat> that's the route I would go, knowing what mm -hmm. I know now. Um, and, and it kind of brings me to a good point, and I want to kind of back it up before we get into the daily practice, because yeah. I, I definitely have some thoughts on that. Um, but... One thing I always say to people, and the person who asks me this question is almost always someone who has been working as a trainer for a while, right? They typically um, have experience in coaching. Um, most of the time, it's someone who I would look at and say, yeah, they have a pretty good training business. They're busy. They've been doing this for a while. And they seem to either be kind of stagnant or they hit an earning ceiling or they're seeing people in their practice, in their training practice who need manual therapy skills, right? That's what happened with us. We we were working a lot in MBSC, and um, obviously we had a great physical therapist there in John Paloff, but we saw people who were kind of dealing with chronic kind of stiffness or discomfort and, and were seeking manual therapy skills, and we didn't really have someone on staff to be able to provide more focused massage work. Um, and when they asked the question, should I go to massage school, the first thing I say to them is make sure that you are, are going to actually start a business because it costs a significant amount of money to go to any manual therapy program, probably in the range of $15,000 uh, per year. I just looked at a curriculum yesterday. It was seventeen grand. And don't forget so, what mean, you not... give up, right? So Yeah, that's you're, you're giving up income as we well. We give up income. So it's go. not just what it costs to go. It's the opportunity cost yeah. that you give up. So we gave up a lot of clients. We gave up a lot of hours. And we gave up a lot of weekends. So, yeah. And so if you're going to make that sacrifice, don't do it and then just go back to what you were doing and then work on your clients at the start of the session for two reasons. One, you're never going to monetize it to make it valuable enough of an investment. And two, you're never going to get good enough at manual therapy if you're just kind of doing it on the side. Like, um, you don't really get great at massage or manual therapy in massage school, right? It's a, it's like, it's like getting a gen ed. I always, they always say, Hey, what massage school should I go to? I say, I don't know which one's convenient for you and which one can you afford? Because in reality, you take a bunch of short semesters of a bunch of different skills and you get comfortable putting your hands on people and figuring out some anatomy from a physical touch standpoint. But 
you don't really develop your skills until you really practice with a lot of people. And if you're only doing a little massage on the side, like at the start of the session, you know, I'm going to work on your hip or work on your shoulder. You're never going to develop the skills to really be good. You're just going to be kind of a crappy manual therapist and a good trainer. Um, whereas you and I intently started a business immediately. And we started seeing clients regularly every single day, in addition to training people in the gym. So we could develop the skills and we could develop a second income stream. And so it was a good investment for us because we capitalized on that. We developed our skills and, and we made money off of it. But if I always say, make sure you have a plan, at least in your head, as to what you're going to do next once you get your licensure and how you're going to apply it into practice, start to build your, your philosophy and your practice model. Like you and I did, right? Like we were already taking classes and continuing ed education and manual therapy before we were even done with school. Mm -hmm. um, so, so make sure you have that mindset going into it. Yeah. We had a very specific focused plan and idea of what we wanted to do with it. And I do want to say a little disclaimer. We are not physical therapists. We are not chiropractors. We are not medical professionals. And when I think about it, movement as medicine might give people the wrong <laughs> uh, idea uh, because movement is medicine. But when they hear the word medicine, they think medical or doctor. Uh, we didn't do it to bypass physical therapy. We don't think we're better than physical therapists. Uh, we did it again as a supplement to our strength and conditioning program. Now also it, we, we added skills, we added tools to our toolbox. So we made ourselves more valuable. Um, but at any time that if it's acute or post-surgical, we send that to, you mentioned John Paloff at MBSC. I, I, we kick that ball to somebody else, to somebody we trust all the time, all the time. All the time. So I do want to say that um, right from the get-go is that you're not doing this to replace any medical professional. Um, I mean, I, I sent someone to him this week who's like a regular training client, someone I see very frequently mm -hmm. who's been dealing with some stuff. And I said, hey, he asked me to check it out. I looked at it. And again, you have to know what are the signs and signals to punt. Um, okay, acute acute pain after an acute injury, like, hey, I fell and hurt my knee. Probably not someone I should be seeing. Um, radiculopathy, pain, weakness, burning, numbness down the leg. Um, really big red flags like night pain, rapid weight loss, things like that. Um, you're not going to massage your way out of. And so whenever you have any question of should I, that's when you send to a, a medical professional because you can always see that person later if, if it's indicated uh, for soft tissue work. And so having a collaborative relationship with, um, I, we work with a lot of different physical therapists in the area, not even just John. Um, I've sent people to Boston uh, Sports Physical Therapy. I've sent people to Fitzgerald Physical Therapy. Um, depending on you know what, I've, they, what the person can afford economically like john is a cash-based service where these other right. places are uh, insurance-based um maybe what they specialize in you know people with you know uh, sensitization and chronic pain right. people dealing with you know acl rehab or shoulder vestibular system places there's, there's yeah, people might be who, more indicated yeah, right who do specific and work so, 
you you have you have a big responsibility because the consumer doesn't always know where they should go right they they end up with you because their friend had a good experience when they had uh just like some chronic hip or back pain then that person walks in and they have numbness and weakness down their leg and uh incontinence and you're like uh this, I, I'm going to make sure you go to a doctor if you have it first, and then I think you should seek a physical therapy script. And being okay and understanding where your lane is is probably the most important thing for you and the client uh, as a professional. So, yeah, clearly define your lanes and clearly have standards for who you are going to work with mm -hmm. um, and have a network to refer to is, is paramount. Now, the other thing we did was we also we – almost, we almost pigeonholed ourselves – um, but for good reason, we only do what I what I call sports massage when somebody asks what we do or movement therapy, right? We're a movement therapist. So we watch how you move. We work on you in shorts and a T-shirt. We don't really do like under the table spa, nice, uh, you know, start the incense, <laughs> uh, put on yeah. the coffee house music and relax type massage it's it's very specific I have classic rock radio yeah. playing in the background all, at the clinic all the it's time it's very specific <laughs> there's a purpose and we, we test movement and the whole goal is to get you back to fitness or get you back in the gym like we don't actually we're probably terrible if, if someone came in and saw what we did and uh, how we book people and how many we have them buy they'd be like this is a terrible business model because we basically sell a few at a time or one at a time and then try to let the dove fly away <clears throat> because the goal is to get you yeah, it's not yeah the goal yeah. is to get you back to something or um return to play whatever play is for you in that context so yeah we're terrible business people but for some reason we stay really really busy because people appreciate the fact that we're not going to BS them or sell them a package of 12 and tell them they need to use it in two weeks. And uh, mm -hmm. so we've, we've been pretty successful from that front that we, we did pigeonholes ourselves and say, we only do, I, I love to bring up the example of the, the gentleman who called you once and said he had really bad knee pain. And he's like, I just want you to rub my legs. And you're like, are you going to work out? Do you exercise? Like there's, you need to, I mean, your doctor told you you need to lose a little bit of weight so you don't have so much knee pain. And the guy was like, no, nah, I'm not going to exercise. Like, I just want you to rub my, uh, yeah. I just want you to rub my knees. And you're like, my legs. And you were like, uh, you know, there's like places you can go in town that are half the cost of us and they'll rub your legs for a whole hour. Like, I, I don't think I'm the right person for this job. Um, yeah. So I'll tell that story. Yeah. Is he, uh, Sorry, he I stole your thunder a, a there. Great, uh, <laughs> it's, it's great. You gave me a good introduction. So uh, he was referred in by a client that had comes to the gym, trains with us, sometimes gets manual therapy with me. And he was referred in, and he, he had, like, a long-lasting kind of nonspecific knee pain. He had some imaging done, you know, degenerative changes, right? Pretty standard for a guy who was in his 50s. Um, and again, you have to treat the client as a whole, not just my knee hurts. And so in, in the discussion with him, um, we talked about his lifestyle. What is his daily activity like? Not a lot or, or really any sedentary job. Um, he was a, a pretty large individual. Um, and I mean, had clearly just walking in, had trouble from a mobility standpoint, right? Just like getting around. 
Um, and so the, the conversation I had with him, obviously I was going to, the manual therapy is a great tool to make someone feel better. Like I always say, you create a window of opportunity. So, I mean, working on him would be helpful, but I, the conversation I had in our first and really only session was like, I want every session that you come in to look a little bit less like massage and a little bit more like exercise, because ultimately I think if we get you moving and get you exercising and it doesn't, you don't have to work out two days a week. I just want you to want to start with one day a week, just in go for some walks and just try to move a little bit. I think you'll start to feel better. And that was a big, and maybe it's on me for communication there. He put the brakes on. I was like, oh, I'm not really interested in that at all. I was just hoping I could come in and have you, you know, rub my knees uh, a couple times a week because he was going to, he was going to like uh, kind of a crack it chiropractor guy before that and going like four times a week for like 15 minutes. You know how you have those like classic kind of stack them and crack them guys. And I said, well, to be honest, I don't really feel comfortable having you come in here three or four times a week just for a massage. Although economically that might be great for me. Uh, I don't think it's what you need. And I, I think that, you know, ideally a more kind of well-rounded plan where we talk about what are the best ways to start to get some behavior change uh, would probably be best. And and that wasn't a good fit, right? And that's okay. Not everyone's going to be a good fit. And, and like kind of going to what you said before, it's not to say I don't have regular massage clients. It's just a huge minority of the people that I see. I actually have um, two people who come in regularly just for massage. One is like an older woman who just wants an hour a week yeah no you it's got, funny you, your daughter actually sent her to me you'll have your and, maintenance uh, thought she was coming for exercise her daughter is actually a training client of mine oh, okay <laughs> and she referred her to me and it's funny she she told her daughter hey i'm going to see kevin every week and her for months her daughter thought she was exercising <laughs> and she was like she was like no no i just get massage <laughs> An hour of massage. But for her, like, it's not to say general massage isn't valuable. It has its own value, right? Like, it, it helps her relax. She she plays tennis. She's very active. It makes her feel better. But she was like, ah, I don't really want to lift weights. I'm like, that's fine. She didn't have, like, an acute issue she wanted to fix. She didn't have, like, a nagging chronic thing she was trying to get addressed. She just, one, probably likes talking to me for the hour. We literally talk the whole hour. And um, I work on her shoulders. I work on her back. I work on her hips. I work on her feet because she's an active 70 something year old woman and she, she feels better. Um, so it's not that I don't see those people, but we definitely don't set an environment. Like you said, that is very spa like, no. Um, no. and so, you know, we kind of, uh, create the environment for the clients that we tend to want to see and like to see, right? Like the gym athlete based or recreational athlete who is probably already working out in the gym with some of our coaches and we kind of have develop a collaborative relationship with them to keep them doing the things that they want. So maintenance clients, so that I would consider that a maintenance clients, like they come in once, mm -hmm. twice a month, sometimes once a week, like just to keep things moving. The, I mean, like you said, it's a great benefit. It's if you, it's a luxury, it's a luxury item. Most of the time who we see are people who, well, the, injury or stiffness or pain is usually what drives you to go do something like this. Not, not a lot of people are coming in uh, for preventative measures, though we wish more would. Uh, a lot of the people who are coming in that we are seeing are coming in for a specific purpose or reason. When I lift my arm, it hurts right here. When I uh, do too many squats, my knees start to hurt. 
also, I do want to just mention that maintenance clients are great, but generally what you're going to see in a model like ours. Now, again, if you are open to working with everybody and everything, that, and you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, like that's totally fine. But that to me, now you're a massage therapist. Again, we are strength coaches first. So that's why I brought this up in the beginning is we are strength coaches first with massage as an option to then go do something else. Also, strength and conditioning allows us to hear people tell us their movements or like when I, like for example, when I squat, I feel it on this side of my knee and then we watch you squat and then, okay, so I mentally know that, okay, that could be glute medius, it could be a hamstring issue, it could be quad, maybe we try a few more screens or tests and we go from there and then I put you on the table, we do massage and then you get back up and squat again and did it improve yes or no and then if it did we continued in the, down that path and we know that's something we can do and if it did not then we're barking up the wrong tree um so that's generally who we're seeing as strength coaches maintenance is great but those aren't going to be the majority of your people and again that's that's why i said in the beginning we're, we're strength coaches first and the other thing is massage is incredibly draining compared to strength and conditioning. I could do 10 sessions of training. I can do maximum four sessions of massage before I am absolutely wiped. And I don't even, if I, I would rather keep it to two or three massage sessions uh, and, and six or seven strength training sessions, but economically, mm -hmm. I can train all day and you can train more people at once. I can train a group of five. I can't massage a group of five. So there are mm -hmm. specific limitations or there are very uh, glaring limitations to being a massage therapist. One, it's just you. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Two, it's, it's physically and emotionally draining for both you and the individual. Uh, because when you put your hands on somebody, there is, I don't know what to call it. It's just there. Or there's this energy transfer that you get from this individual, from you to them. Yeah, and you're just plain and simple. You're physically working for the whole hour. Like, yeah, like it, it's... You're not, you know, like training, you can kind of, you pick up the weights for them maybe. Yeah. And, and you, you walk show around. Them some demos, but it's a lot of time standing there watching them. Yeah. Right. There's none of that in, in manual therapy if you're doing it. And even if like, I mean, like I said, the majority of our sessions are, hey, we work for like 15, 20 minutes, maybe on some manual therapy at the most. And then we're out there exercising. But that that there's a cost to that right. physically. And then to you. finally, and, massage tr doesn't travel well. Like I could train someone in a park. I can train someone in their house. I can train someone. But you have to have a table. You have to have massage oil. You have to have sheets. Also, there's a lot more liability that goes into massage due to the ethics of things that can happen that don't happen in training. So that's, again, see, this is what happens when I wake up at 4 a.m. to do this. My brain is not uh, jogging yet until we get into this a little bit. But that's what I was trying to explain at the beginning is why I always say I'm a strength coach first because that I can always fall back on strength coaching or training whereas massage like 
I have to be physically able to do it or want to do it. I also have to have a lot more available from a resource standpoint um, that I don't need to do training. So training will always be there and I'll always be able to do 35 to 40 hours a week of that. But I, I, I mean, I applaud any massage therapist who can do 30 plus hours a week of, of manual work because I, I, wouldn't be able to do it. I think I could do 20 max if that was all I did all week. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so you brought up a few points there that, that I want to touch on mm. one, um, all the things you talked about, about like the increased physical demand, emotional demand, and uh, like that goes into being a manual therapist or massage therapist. Again, speaking to the business model, you have to create a separate business. You have to charge more for your services. Right. If you come and see me at uh, Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning, it costs one thing, and the money runs through Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning, and eventually my share comes back to me. Whereas if you come and see me at Movement is Medicine, you that that is a different cost. It's a different price. It's a different service, and so I charge more for that. Um, and so you have to be comfortable. Like if you have clients who are existing clients who you're training, you have to build them in a separate way. Because for you, the, the cost benefit has to work out. If you're not making more money and you're doing something that's harder and more strenuous, you have to have more insurance, as you touched on as well. As a massage service, you have to have the table. You have to have a space that's dedicated to it. As we, I mean, do. the laundry um, and the oil is expensive. It's my second biggest expense. Laundry. My second bis- biggest expense is laundry. Yeah, exactly. Um, I keep I keep Wind Street Laundry and Woburn in business. <laughs> they come like four times a week. Um, but it's because I, I broke down the numbers. So like you have to, if you're going to do this, you have to really set up a separate business model for it. And so that, that was a discussion I had with this individual who asked the question. Um, and then, uh, additionally, you, something you touched on at the very beginning where you talked about, you know, looking at someone move and making decisions, you have to develop another skill set, not just in a manual therapy standpoint, but what is going to be your treatment and training approach? Um, how are you going to, take a movement appraisal. And this is going to segue into our next question. Mm-hmm. Um, and how are you going to decide how to make decisions? You can't, you're not going to go to massage school and get any of that, those skills at all. When you go to massage school, you like I said, it's like a bunch of gen eds. You're going to do a few weeks of sports massage, a few week, weeks of general massage, a few weeks of like, uh, like we did hot stones. Yeah. I've never used those since. Uh, But you have to go through all those and then you go and you do your clinical time. And so you're not going to get any movement appraisal or not going to have any ability to connect the dots to training. And that's why you and I, we've always made the policy of only hiring people who are already fitness professionals. Mm -hmm. I would rather take a strength coach, a personal trainer and send them to massage school than to go the other way around because they need to have an appreciation of movement and exercise to be able to have the decision-making matrix in their head. And so those skills are, are really, really important to develop in addition to just the skills with your hands. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the the price point needs to be higher. I just wanted to go back to that for a second because, so for example, when I do massages here at the house, it's nothing under 105 and there's no packages. There's It's 105 mm-hmm. per session, no matter what. With training, because there's a larger commitment and you might do it three times a week or two times a week, 
I do packages for that, but I don't. So again, the price point has to be higher due to the skill that it takes, the energy that it takes, and your time has to be value. Your time is valuable. So there's an, it's a benefit to be able to charge more, but it can also be a negative if uh, it's taking away from something else or you don't value yourself enough. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make that point that, yeah, you, you've, you've got to value it more cause it is a more specific skill, um, than, than strength and con- or personal training. Um, that's mm-hmm. not to say personal training and as it I, doesn't require skill. Uh, it just doesn't require just, different. just a different kind of skill. And again, strength and conditioning, you can work with two, three people at a time in six or seven sessions a day massages you can't do that so yeah um and so kind of in summary and i want to use it to segue to the next kind of question we had was like one understand why you're going understand the business model that you want to have out of it Mm -hmm. most importantly have a very clear understanding of who you should and should not be working with and develop relationships with other health professionals who can support you and your clients um and and understand how you can do it sustainably for a career and not just as a little side thing you do um because you'll you'll never get good enough and you'll never make enough money if it's a side gig um and and kind of to segue the next thing developing uh the skills to be able to take an appraisal of how someone moves what they're dealing with and then have decision making based on that and so if you could kind of touch on you know what was the other question that you got um, this week that, that that we want to discuss? So I got a question this week about the functional movement screen. And so you and I use the functional movement screen. We also use the SFMA, the Selective Functional Movement Assessment, which just breaks down the functional movement screen into a joint-by-joint joint approach. So just macro down to micro. And that's not to say these are the only two assessments you can use, but they're the ones we use. And as long as you have an assessment, that's what's important. Or you have a way to um, screen movement or look at movement and then make a better decision after. So functional movement screen just allows us to make a better decision moving forward. And this individual is asking me, so if someone gets a one, what should and should that person do? If that person gets a two out of three, what should or shouldn't they do? And then if they get a three out of three, which would mean that they are above average or, or perfect at that movement, whatever perfection is, uh, what what should and shouldn't they do? So, And, and let's back it up just yeah. for one second. If there's people who are listening who really aren't familiar, they... FMS uses a one through three or a zero through three screening, right? So they have their standards that they use. And again, you don't have to agree with the standards at all. Uh, you can have your own movement app- appraisal. The most important part of a movement appraisal is that you look at how someone moves and make a decision based on where you want your entry point to training to be, right? But they, three, based on their standards means you hit all the standards. You can do that movement the way they want. Two, means that there might be some things that aren't what you're looking for, but they, they check most of the boxes. And right? they're, they're and likely to not that, be injured yeah. due to a and, movement problem. And one being that 
one being that they can't do it and zero being that it hurts, right? And so if we're going to base it off of that metric specifically, that would be their their, their guideline. Um, and so just I just want to provide some clarification yeah. if there's people listening who might and not it, be familiar with And that. it's really the stoplight approach. You mentioned this before we got on this call, the stoplight approach. So three is a green, two is a yellow, red is a one or a zero. And we talked about this as uh, as a massage therapist, knowing when to punt the ball or like what's not in your wheelhouse. Anything that's a zero, that is pain, is most likely also going to require. Now, that doesn't mean you can't work on them. But if it's a zero, you should also be working with somebody else who is a professional that works with people who are in pain. So that's a medical professional. So again, that that this functional movement screen that we use or any screen that you use tells us or it helps us with the triage part of this. So when do I punt the ball? Um, when, sh when should I back off, right? Those are your red lights. Now, and those are going to when you, you use your lowest regressions as a trainer. So that's your easiest exercises. Now, yellow being, okay, so... As you mentioned, there's there's some movement uh, inefficiencies here, but it's not enough to, to cause a red light or a big red flag yet, but I'm going to be aware of them. And so when I select the exercise uh, moving forward, I'm going to probably start a little bit easier and then progress from there. If you get a green light, now we're really just worried about volume, intensity, weight we're not worried whether we've taken the movement stuff off the table um you've taken the question of can they do it yes can they do the movement right off? and so yeah. now it's and just loading so, and, and that decision making process so again the the assessment should allow you to make a better decision and from a that's for for fitness and then we use the same thing for massage because now i could say okay so when I watched you do that movement, I know that these are the muscles that would limit that movement from being done properly, either a yellow or a red. So uh, those are the muscles that I'm going to go focus in on and try to work manually. And then we can t test retest and see if the pattern improved. And if it did improve, we want to add exercise to it because exercise is the glue that's going to hold it all together. So I can't walk around all day long massaging your hamstring if that should be the problem. You're going to have to do something on your end, and it wouldn't be financially responsible of that individual to come in every single day uh, to get that hamstring worked on. So that's where we bring our tools in. This is why the mobility wad was so popular, was I'm going to give you some tools that you can work on your own. So I always tell everyone, these things right here, my hands, these are this is like using a sniper rifle. Okay, I, I can focus in, I can dig in, I know exactly where to go. When you use a softball or a band or a foam roller, you're using a bazooka. All right, so you're just getting all the things and hoping you're hitting the right spot. Okay, you pay for the sniper rifle, and then you can do the bazooka stuff on your own at home. <laughs> well, and I want to kind of talk, go back to the kind of movement screening in, in context 
um, because there's always going to be, there's definitely always people who kind of detract from things like the FMS and, right. and say, you know, uh, it's a waste of time, the arbitrary, the movement standards are arbitrary. Um, and they kind of go back to the old thing that FMS has moved away from, which is good, that they used to say, oh, you can predict injury, injury which they don't say anymore. Um, that I, I, as many people, they learned that, you know, injuries are a complex thing. You can't look at someone move and say that person's going to tear their ACL or look at them move and say they're going to hurt their back. We know that there's a much more complex uh, system than that. There's a lot of things that can factor that. And then they say those movement standards are arbitrary in some in some context, some context might be. But we I think we can all say no matter where you are on the spectrum of coaches and trainers, there's a certain way we want to see people move when they do an exercise. Right. And there's huge variation for that. Right. If you go into your gym or my gym and see a bunch of people goblet squatting, there's going to be a little differences. Right. There's good, better and best. And there's standards for what we want. Right. If someone's chest is a little low or, you know, their knees are a little in, no one really cares. Right. But when you look at them in a body weight squat, when they first come in, like every good coach should say, well, let me just see you do a body weight squat or squat with a press out. And you can look at them and say, that person's ready to goblet squat or that person's ready to front squat, or maybe they need an assistance, or maybe uh, we need to work on their hip or ankle mobility or give them a heel. If there's a decision-making process that happens and the reason things like FMS or SFMA have been helpful, especially for young coaches is because it gives them a standardized way to look at things. And then once you understand that you probably don't need the kit, right? You might not need the stick or the heel board to do it, you can kind of look and be like, ah, that person might not be ready to back squat or front squat or goblet squat. And so I, when people detract from an FMS, I think it's usually because it's someone who grew past needing the kit, right? And they're like, well, you know, you don't need it. Well, but it's really helpful for someone who's young, who probably doesn't have a lot of experiences, hasn't seen a lot of squats and hasn't seen a lot of pushups and hasn't seen a lot of lunges to help them kind of make a decision. Yeah. And, and if we get away from the idea that you're going to predict an injury, Yes, you're probably not going to predict an injury, but you might run into a problem if you have someone do a rear foot elevated split squat and they can't even do a bodyweight split squat, right? Like it, it, you might run into an issue there. And so you go back to that stoplight idea where you say like, okay, someone comes in and does, uh, you know, a squat, a bodyweight squat and their heels come up and their knees collapse and their chest falls forward. So it looks like a good morning that's probably not someone you're going to put a bar on or start loading, right? You might start with, let's teach you how to do a squat press up. That's as simple as what a movement appraisal could be. But a lot of these commercialized systems help someone have standardization and make better decisions early on. And um, I think the question you had specifically was programming, right? Like where do I start, right? So you should be, have a progressive, regressive system, right? How many times have you and I said that? to make better decisions and be adaptable. So if someone comes in and their heels come up and you cue them and their chest goes down and you cue them and they don't get better, okay, let's put you on a heel lift. Let's have you do a press out with a ball. Let's see if that looks a little more efficient so you can get the load into the joints and to the muscles that you want as opposed to places that you might not want on that exercise. So I think that, uh, you know, we are so polarized sometimes when we talk about these commercial models for movement assessment. But in reality, you, you need somewhere to start to help you make decisions. And, and I think they're very helpful in that and in, in decision-making process. You know? If I told you, right, the FMS, if it only takes you eight to 10 minutes. When you get really good at it, you can do it in less than eight minutes. If you do an eight-minute 
FMS, you've already set yourself up and your client for much more success in that first session and all the following sessions, as opposed to if I did no screen at all, it might take me four to five sessions to tease all that stuff out. So eventually all that stuff comes out in the wash, right? But if I could just take eight Mm -hmm. minutes and get the laundry done then, as opposed to having to do it over five (laughs) sessions, why wouldn't you just take the eight minutes, right? It's exactly, you just save yourself so much time. It is also, if nothing else, if there, if you want to argue and say it, it doesn't do what it says it does fine. It's the best sales tool that you have because you can watch somebody move and you can say, Oh, we need to work on this. And based off of what, you just presented, this is what might be hurting your shoulder, or this is something uh, maybe we want to stay away from squats right now uh, because we, we're going to work on this over here. Like You can have a better discussion, and now you've really got your client's interest. Um, mm-hmm. And so like I've used and- it as a great selling tool as well. Um, and again, it makes, it makes my programming better. It it helps the individual. It saves us a bunch of time. Like there's just so many benefits that go with having some sort of screen or some sort of process that you do from the start. Um, and I was going to mention uh, before you go that it could be as simple as having the same workout you take everybody through the first day. So if I do a workout with a push-up, a goblet squat, a split squat, a single leg deadlift, a front plank, a TRX row... Uh, and maybe some, a, a, a one-minute bike ride or a three-minute bike ride or something like I can get a lot of information from that one workout, and I can scale it, right? So we talked progressions, regressions, and progressions, or challenges and options. Um, push-ups, I can, prog- I can make those easier or harder based off of the individual in front of me. So Somebody comes in and we say, hey, let's start with the bench. Let's do some bench push-ups. And they do 10 easy bench push-ups. All right, let's move our way down a little bit. Let's get closer to the ground. All right, and then we get to the ground. They only do two. Okay, well, I've got a pretty good starting point. But somebody comes in and they, they do three on the bench and they collapse. Like, okay, we need to go up. Like, you could use mm-hmm. the same workout and regress and progress that during same thing with goblet squat. You have somebody come in and they tell you they have knee pain. Like, okay, we're going to regress the squat right away. I don't, I don't need to, we don't need to load it with weights. Um, yeah. And I mean, the introductory workout is a thing we talk to all of our coaches about, right? We talk about how to do a movement screen, how to look at someone's joints. If they can get into shoulder flexion, if they can get into hip flexion, hip external rotation, like we teach our coaches how to do that. But then the introductory workout, I say like, look at all the basic things we want people to be good at and take them through body weight or lightly loaded versions. And let's see how it looks and how they feel. And that, that can give you a wealth of information about where to start. Also it can set the client up to be successful from the very beginning. I always say in the first session, I want them to feel like, they're successful. I don't want to give them things where they fail and struggle, especially for a new client. It's going to be very discouraging for them. If you put a bar on them, 
um, and they get stapled in a bench or a split or a squat. That's not a great way to start, especially for someone who doesn't have a lot of training experience. I want them to go in and be like, I feel good. I did a good job. This place is the right place for me. I made a good decision. And they get that little hit of dopamine that says like, I belong here, right? And so that's really, really important. And it kind of is interesting because the people who kind of always take away or detract from some sort of movement screening are always the one that are say like, you're going to cause kinesiophobia. You're going to make them scared to exercise if you tell them that, you know, they their shoulder doesn't move well. Like when I screen someone, I don't say, hey, your shoulder sucks. Like it's, it's how you communicate, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'll just take an appraisal, take notes. And again, if someone comes in and has, says, oh, my shoulder hurts, I've been working out at home. And then you get their movements, you look at their shoulder and they're like this, and they're like this. And you're like, I mean, that's the low hanging fruit. Like you have a joint that doesn't move through a full range of motion well, and you're repeatedly loading it into what you're trying to get into a full range of motion, they're probably not going to feel great. And so I think sometimes when people um detract from movement screening they have this idea that you're like you do an fms and then you go ha, 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 look at that shitty push-up <laughs> and they that's not how you communicate with people right if you have any communication skills you just say hey i want to see what a push-up looks like and i want to see what this lunge or split squat looks like and i want to see what this squat looks like and then you make a decision right and so it, that is really an application, how it's done. Although sometimes you might take one of these commercial models and courses, it's this very formal process that you go through. There's much more uh, listening to the client and much more communication with the client that happens when you actually screen them. And then you probably make them feel better, right? You set them up in a position to be successful when they come in, as opposed to throwing a bar on their back and be like, nah, their first day, we just put a bar on their back and have a back squat and go from there and then they a uh, certain per per uh, percentage of those people fail um i don't want failure early on in their training session ever i want success because it's going to probably build a foundation for them to be successful going forward two things number one you don't have to you don't have to do an fms there's no rules there's a, there's no rule that says you have to right <laughs> so you i skip them yeah. sometimes if i have a conversation with an individual and they have a lot of anxiety about coming to the gym and I spend most of my time just getting them comfortable and keeping it really, really simple. Again, I, I go through my, my first workout, which is almost always TRX row, some sort of squat, some sort of push up, uh, some sort of single leg exercise, and then some sort of core drill just to keep it really simple. I skip the FMS sometimes and save it for the second or third workout after they're more comfortable. Okay, so you don't have, there's no, you don't have to do a screen to start, if, especially if you've had that conversation or you're meeting this person for the first time and you talk to them for 10 minutes and you realize, okay, screen is not the best place to start today. So you are allowed to skip it. <laughs> okay. We're not saying you have to do one, at least in the first session. Two. If they do something that might dis might be discouraging or they try the push-up and they can't do a single push-up, okay, if you were to communicate with them in the way you shared, yeah, that's a problem. Like, you're you're not a good coach. <laughs> that says straight up. Or if you say, like, if you say, like, oh, you better not do that. You're going to hurt yourself. Yeah, like, yeah. Or that's, that, that that's the worst push-up I've ever seen, right? Like, you're, you're... you say, like, hey, what, maybe we try it this way. Okay, so yeah, that was um, that's my point. Is you you give them a plan, 
that's what they're coming to you for. They're, they're coming for a plan. If you give them a plan or you give them another option, you've actually created a positive experience on something that could have been negative. So yes, it could have been negative if you made it negative. But because I watched you do that push, I'd say, oh, that's totally fine. So we're just going to come over here and, and start our push-ups here. That's it. That's a, it's, I've turned it into a positive and I've communicated to you that uh, I you're in good hands. I'm going to make sure that we don't do anything that could leave you injured or hurt. And this is what will distinguish you from programs or systems where it's like, hey, oh, it's your first day, Kevin. Welcome. Well, this is what we're doing today. Uh, get to it. Good luck. I'll see you. I'll see you on the other side. Oh, you can't barbell snatch with 115? Too bad. You got to do it anyways, or try. And if you can't do it, you'll be able to do it in a few months, right? Like that's, that's the bigger problem. And that's still how a lot of these systems and companies operate. Okay. I'm all for exercise. That's totally, I, I want people in there. I just want a little more instruction or I want an introductory, introductory workout that you got to check some boxes before you do said program on the TV or the whiteboard, right? That's all I'm advocating for here. And also maybe some, some options, right? So if you can't do this, well, then let's do this over here. The individual knows what they should and shouldn't do. Also, that's the whole point of having a coach is for the coach to instruct and to help them make better decisions. So if Mary looks up and sees it says lat pull downs or chin ups, she knows she's going to go do lat pull downs. Like she doesn't, if she can't do a chin up, she knows she's not going to do chin ups that day. But if you just write chin ups and you leave no other options and you have no instruction or coaching, she's going to go try to do chin ups and she's going to throw herself up there. She might get injured or she's going to be unsuccessful. Whereas if you had just provided an option or a you had done a screen or you had done that first workout with them, you could have made a much better decision, made them more comfortable, and instructed them on say, hey, when we have chin-ups tomorrow in the workout, I want you to do this over here instead. So all we're advocating for is a little more triage, and I don't want to call it hand-holding. Um, because it's not what, it's just better decision. It's coaching. That's it's coaching. It's, it's taking your role seriously, writing up something on a, on a TV or a whiteboard and just coming up with it on a spreadsheet with no plan, right? There's a difference between exercise and working out and then training. Training has a purpose. Training is a plan. Training is in set in phases or weeks, a workout is just something you do for 45 minutes, right? And that's all well and good. But if, again, I, I'm going to say it again, and people are going to get real sick of me saying this, we are playing the long game. I, this is the fourth podcast I've said this now. We are playing the long <laughs> game. We never, ever play the short game. You will not be successful in the short game. I'm telling you right now. You can be successful for a few weeks, but... If you want to do this for a long time, you want to help a lot of people, you want people to get better, you got to look at it as training and creating a plan, not just creating a workout or doing an exercise. So we got to play the long game here. I'm going to get off my soapbox now.
<laughs> Sorry. That was the sound clip, I think, for I got, the episode. I got very, very pumped up there. I get very, I get on my uh, tangents. I apologize. I like it. Well, we're up against it here for time. So um, we're going to go to our weekly uh, book recommendation segment. Uh, do you have a book you can start with? Because I'm going to go off screen and grab mine that I see right across from me. A book that I can start with? I didn't even think about this. Uh, the I I'm going to go with an autobiography here. I okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna go grab mine while you talk. All right. I'm gonna go with an autobiography. Autobiography here. Total Recall is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's story, and the fact that he went from living in Austria to becoming Mr. Universe to becoming the number one actor in the world, to becoming a real estate mogul, and then becoming a governor almost makes him a renaissance man. And the story is fascinating to to be able to dominate the physical world, the entertainment world, the business world, and then the political world. Uh, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me that someone was able to do that. And whether you like him or not, or yes, he's done some shady things and he might not be the best human in the world, but the story of how the drive it takes, the what he had to do to get to be able to just become an actor without knowing really any English at all when he moved here is fascinating to me that he could dominate four different kind of genres or 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 i mean it's hard to dominate one thing in your entire life and he did it with four which is just it's it's a great governor the governor it's a great story um and well listen i listened to it i really enjoyed it so total recall by arnold schwarzenegger it's not a fitness book but it's a great great listen if you want something that's fun and interesting well, I'm going to give you two books by the same person. Okay. Uh, so some people listening might know, like, I'm a Tom Michaud super fan. Uh, I have, like, a man crush. <laughs> Tom um, and so he has two books that have been really helpful for me. Uh, the first one, obviously much thicker, uh, Human Locomotion. And he kind of, he's he works with runners primarily, almost entirely. And so this is Human Locomotion, the conservative management of gait-related disorders. So he talks all about gait managing running related injuries assessing running related injuries um and and he does all these illustrations himself which is unbelievable like there's some great illustrations in here um and then he has a smaller version <laughs> called injury free running this is the second edition and this is probably a little more practical um just as far as like it takes away some of the theoretical discussion or some of the, the more uh detailed breakdown it kind of just goes into application maybe a little bit better for the lay person or recreational runner to read so uh human locomotion and injury-free running both really valuable resources things i call back to very frequently uh to reference on my day-to-day he's got a very fascinating presentation that or staff meeting that he did at uh mbsc on mbsc tv if anyone wants to watch it was really good if anyone's yeah. part of mbsc tv one of yeah one of my favorite um staff meetings was when tom Mashad came and did he used his like little pressure sensor thing he had his toe he measures foot strength yeah, yeah he, it's, it's, is it big toe well, strength or so foot quick. strength yeah and strength. so i i 
real quick before we wrap it up yeah. is like he 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 there's a lot of research about you know foot strength specifically and running related injuries um and he was kind of advocating for some of these like isolation based exercises which can be really valuable uh in some instances but what we found is like we do a lot of single leg work um in a lot of stuff where people don't have shoes on like in the weight room or in the warm-up and so when he came and tested our staff even though we hadn't done any of the like isolation based exercises that he was uh kind of advocating for he said we had the strongest feet out of anybody he'd ever tested because i mean he really just works with a running population um but i think it goes to show like if you're doing things on one foot obviously a greater demand for stability at the foot um and if you're doing things sometimes without a shoe on um, i think you can kind of build some of those qualities so it was really interesting when he came so i, yeah, I would check out that in service for sure and what um, do we got coming right. up uh, same stuff as winter last seminar. Uh, MBSC <laughs> winter seminar uh, just got approved for 1.4 NSCA CEUs. Oh. So if you're looking for your CEUs, um, it's approved for both the virtual live stream as well as the in person. So uh, if you got to get those CEUs, uh, we're an option for you. So uh, go to mbscwinterseminar.com and you can sign up today. Beautiful. I'm in Chicago, Niles, Illinois, this next week. So next Sunday. I'll be teaching there. And then I'm in Los Altos. I said Los, Los Gatos last time, I realized, but it's Los Altos. They're <laughs> very close to each other. So same same area. We're, we're okay there. Uh, the following week on the 27th. So that's what I've got coming up. Awesome. And then I got my yes day. So we're going to be doing that tomorrow. I'm about to go hit the trampoline All right. park. All right. Uh, go Bengals. <laughs> go Bengals. Go Joe Burr. <laughs> Yeah. Th thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next Take week. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Kev.